The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I would invite you this morning, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. We'll be giving attention this morning to Luke, chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. And to the end of the chapter, verse 50. I want you to imagine a scene with me this morning. It's a scene that at one point in history played out every single Friday evening, almost without fail. Just as the sun was beginning to set, a man by the name of Ed would come strolling along the beach to his favorite pier, He would walk out to the very edge of that pier and in his hand would be inevitably a bucket of shrimp. As he walks out to the end of the pier to where it seems like he's standing literally on the edge of the earth with the sun setting in the background on the horizon, he begins to look up at the sky And before too long, Ed isn't alone there on the edge of the pier because little white dots begin to appear in the sky over his head. Hundreds of them. They come screeching and they come squawking and they come flying their way toward this old man on the end of the pier. Before long, he's enveloped with dozens of seagulls flapping and flying all around. And for a few minutes, Ed stands there tossing shrimp up into the air for the seagulls to catch. And he does so inevitably with a smile on his face, a smile that's birthed out of deep and abiding gratitude. It's kind of a thank you that never stops. If you were on the beach on any given Friday evening and you looked out onto the pier and you saw this old man throwing shrimp to seagulls, you would have likely not given it a second glance. You would have probably walked right by and continued on your married way, your merry way. But this was no ordinary event. And this was not an ordinary individual. The man I'm describing to you is a real man by the name of Eddie Rickenbacker. Eddie Rickenbacker was uh, a famous hero in actually in World War I and also in World War II. He was a pilot and in World War II on one of his many flights across the Pacific, he and his seven-member crew went down in the ocean. Miraculously, all of the men survived the crash and were able to get into a life raft But they were hundreds of miles away from land and nobody knew that they had gone down and their situation was indeed a very desperate situation. Captain Rickenbacker and his crew, they they floated, bouncing back and forth on the waves for several days. They fought the sun, they fought the sharks, they fought most of all extreme hunger and thirst. By the eighth day, afloat, all of their rations had run out. They had no food. They had no drinkable water. And they had no no idea if anybody in the world even knew that they were still alive. What they needed in that moment was a miracle. And it it would be only by a miracle that they could survive. So on this one particular afternoon, the men in their raft held a simple devotional service. And they did what most people would do in similar circumstances. They prayed for a miracle. Captain Rickenbacker laid back on the raft in the heat of the sun. He pulled his military cap down over his face and tried to take a nap. All he could hear in the background was the 
sound he'd been hearing for days and days on end now. The days of the, the sound of, of waves slapping against the raft. But suddenly, out of nowhere, a different sound filled his ear. A sound that was unexpected and a sound that he could hardly believe. And as he heard this interesting sound, he felt something on his head. Out of nowhere, a seagull appeared and landed right on his head. In a flash that's hard to imagine, somebody having the strength and, and dexterity to do in similar circumstances, he grabbed with a quick reach the seagull. He was able to, as gross as it sounds to you and me, wring its neck and make out of it a meal for him and his shipmates. It was not exactly what you would go to a restaurant and eat raw seagull. But when you're desperately starving, anything that will keep you alive will work. They were industrious men and they had good training, so they knew to, to save some of the inner parts, if you will, the, to use for fishing bait, and they did so successfully. They were able to catch some additional fish to be able to add some additional food to their diet and some additional bait to be able to catch some additional fish. All in all, Captain Rickenbacker and his shipmates were adrift for over 24 days. But a simple seagull, a miracle in the middle of the ocean, literally saved their lives. They were rescued before too long, and after, again, after 24 days, and Eddie Rickenbacker lived many, many years after that ordeal, but he never forgot, never forgot that moment when God provided for him and his friends a miracle in the form of a little bird. And so, as often as he could for the rest of his life on Friday nights, he would go out on that pier and he would throw shrimp to the seagulls. It was a simple act, but it was an act of pure gratitude. It was a thank you that just never stopped. A thank you to the birds from whom came their little winged savior, but also a thank you to the Lord who made the birds and provided that savior in the middle of nowhere. There is a particular kind of gratitude that flows out of the human heart when you know that you are desperate and you have no hope and suddenly out of nowhere, hope arrives. And God does for you what you could never imagine anyone else being able to do. As we enter into Luke chapter seven, verse 36 and following, we are going to encounter a woman who understands this kind of gratitude and who understands the kind of worship that flows out from this kind of gratitude. And we're gonna see here, unfortunately, in contrast to a very religious individual who understands none of those things, yet purports to represent God to the world. Luke moves into this narrative in verse 36, sort of right on the heels of this encounter with John the Baptist and his disciples, of Jesus encountering John the Baptist and his disciples. We're not sure if chronologically it fits exactly there or if Luke has placed it there in his gospel thematically. Luke has done that in other parts of his gospel. But it doesn't particularly matter the particular sequence of events here. The event is a real event, and it's an event that took place. And he introduces us to this event by introducing to us Jesus getting a suspicious invitation from a Pharisee. We see that in verse 36. He simply tells us one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. Now at the surface, that sounds like just sort of a mundane contextual statement, but there's an awful lot in that statement that's important for us to think through. 
It's a remarkable sort of an invitation to start with. There, a, a Pharisee is having a dinner party, and he's having this dinner party with the intention of inviting Jesus to come and to be his sort of guest of honor. Now, if you've been tracking with us through Luke's gospel, you know that we already are aware up to this point that the Pharisees are no friends of Jesus. They have no fondness for him. They have no love for him. They have no intention to follow or believe anything that he said or done. We've seen it working our way through back in chapter 5. You know, when Jesus heals a paralytic, they, they simply say in verse 21, and the scribes, or Luke records for us, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? It'll circle back to that in this particular text. But they can't even rejoice with a, a paralytic who's been healed. All they can do is criticize Christ and call him a blasphemer. In verse 30 of the same chapter, they find Jesus having dinner with Levi, also known as Matthew, a well-known tax collector in town. And Luke records there, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Like, where do you guys get off hanging out with a riffraff in the city? And the subtle implication is that godly people would never do things like that. Then in verse 33 of chapter 5, they said to him, The disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But, you're, but yours eat and drink. Listen, all the, other, all the other important religious people had followers, and their followers did things like pray and do very spiritual things. Your followers are yucking it up with the deplorables. What's the deal with that? But then in chapter 6, verse 2, as Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields, you may recall, they, they grab some heads of grain and they eat it because they're hungry. And the Pharisees said to him, why are you doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? You're breaking the law. I don't care if you're starving. You don't break the law. And then in Luke 6, chapter 7, after Jesus heals a, a man with a withered hand in the middle of a worship service, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, we're told, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. So this, this, this pressure has been building, and this hostility has been building all along. And at this point, they're not looking to befriend Jesus. They're looking, they're looking to find a way to accuse him. They'll sling any kind of mud they can at him. They're hoping some can stick on the wall. And so out of the midst of this, one of them approaches Jesus and invites him over for a dinner party. Now, Jesus is no fool. He understands who this man is and from where he comes. And so it's surprising that the invitation would be given to begin with. And we're not told why this particular Pharisee does this. We're not told why he invites Jesus. People, people sort of speculate as to what he's up to. And we can certainly, I think, infer from his behavior, at least as this story unfolds, that he doesn't have any affection for Jesus. Some people say and argue that he's trying to trap Jesus. My suspicion is that this particular man, while going along with the other Pharisees on the outside, has some nagging doubt going on in the back of his mind. Like he's probably 99% convinced that Jesus is a fraud, but there's that 1% that's sort of nagging in the back of his head. This small sliver of, what if this guy really is who people say he is? So he invites him over to satisfy his own curiosity. At least that's my suspicion. But just as equally surprising as the invitation is Jesus' decision to accept it. Jesus knows this Pharisee. He understands the opposition. He knows that these men hate him, and he knows that they have evil motives. And yet he still does not hesitate to accept a dinner invitation into the home of one of these men. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he walk right into what quite possibly was a trap? Well, the Bible tells us again and again tells us once and shows us again and again that Jesus is a friend of sinners, even when the sinners are Pharisees. He came to seek and to, to save the lost. And as the story unfolds, we find out pretty quickly and pretty directly that this man is lost. In fact, he's not just lost. He is the worst kind of lost. He's the lost kind that thinks he's saved. And so we could say that this event and Jesus' attendance is all about one thing. 
he's going to evangelize a Pharisee. And as the story unfolds, we'll find out it's unsuccessful evangelizing. Now, Luke tells us that he went to this home and that they're reclining at the table. There's a bit of cultural context that we need to understand here to make sense of the way the, the rest of the narrative unfolds. A, a dinner party in the first century was not like a dinner party you would throw at your home right now in our day. In our day, if you invite people over for dinner, you invite them into your home and you would gather around the table that's you know probably that high and you would pull up a chair to the table and everybody would sit in a chair and the food would be on the table and you'd have silverware laid out and you would have pleasant conversation around a meal, eating your food with silverware while seated at the table. In the first century, it's not like that. Dinner tables were low to the ground. You see a picture on the screen, and, and that was an approximation of what it would look like in a typical dinner party. The, 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 you would sit around the table, sort of not sitting but laying on your left side, typically your left side, resting on your left elbow because most people were right-handed, and there would be cushions and things around, particularly in a, uh, the home of a wealthy person like a Pharisee. And you would sit there and you would, you would sit around the table leaning on your left elbow and, and you would not use forks and knives and spoons but your right hand to pick up food and, and eat from the table. And there would be conversation and there would be interaction and there would be the picking up of food and passing it around. And people would sit or lay, if you will, in a fashion like this where their head is up near the table, up near the important stuff, the food, and their feet are sort of perpendicular to the table, as far away from the food as possible. I suspect that you can imagine why the orientation was that way, right? People walked around everywhere. They walked around everywhere in, in you know, Jerusalem cruisers and sandals. That, that just had little leather straps and it was sandy and it was muddy and everywhere you walked your feet got dirty and it was just inevitable you didn't drive around in cars with nice shoes and socks you just walked around in the sand and the mud and so when you came to a place like that the dirtiest part of your body is probably going to be your feet and it's probably needs to be kept as far away from the food as possible and so there are a number of reasons why this kind of an orientation would be. So when Luke says they're reclining at the table, that's what they're doing, something along those lines. In all likelihood, this is not a private dinner. This is not just a one-on-one -on -one dinner between a Pharisee and Jesus. These were, this is more like a banquet or a dinner party where others would have been invited, other important people would have been invited. It would have been common to do for a rabbi who was passing through town. You'd invite other important people. And the context would have been a little different than, than even sort of banquets in our day. It would likely have been held in a courtyard, but potentially in, in a home. But the doors would have been open and people would have been coming and going and able to, to come in and not necessarily sit around the table, but stand around the exterior of the room and listen in on the conversation and, and hear what's being talked about. So the important people would be around the table and the other less important people or people who were just casually observing would come and go and stand around the perimeter. Does that make sense? And so that's the idea of what's going on in this particular Pharisee's home. At the beginning, it's nothing other than an ordinary dinner party. But then Luke tells us this thing takes a surprising turn very, very quickly because someone shows up that isn't invited in verse 37, behold, Luke tells us that a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in a Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Somewhere in the middle of this dinner party, things take a turn that nobody saw coming. A woman shows up who was clearly not invited to the party. Luke captures sort of the surprising nature of this by saying, behold. Like, behold, like you would never believe what happened in the middle of this dinner party. This gal shows up. Who is she? Well, we don't know. We don't know who she is. We don't know very much about her at all. We don't know her name. We don't know where she came from. We don't know how she knew about Jesus. We don't know how she had encountered him before. We don't know much about her at all. 
There's one thing that's an important detail that we do know about her. She's a well-known sinner. She's a well-known sinner. That fact is established multiple times in the text. That she is a sinner from town, and everybody pretty much knows that that's the kind of woman she is. There are those that speculate that she was quite possibly a prostitute, and there is some sort of nuance to the language that could certainly hint that way, and it would certainly make sense in the context. But the fact that she's a sinner is mentioned three times in, the, in this short narrative, and Jesus talks about her being a sinner whose sins are many. So that's all we know about her, that she's a woman who's encountered Jesus somewhere before, and that she's a notorious sinner. She never speaks in this narrative. Her actions speak for her. So why is she there? Why does she show up? Well, she's heard that Jesus was at this dinner party. That's what Luke tells us. She heard that Jesus was there, and she had come, inevitably, to anoint his head with some expensive perfume that she had, which would have been a culturally you know, ordinary way to honor somebody who was very important to you. So it seems that she showed up at this dinner party simply because she heard Jesus was there and she wanted to personally see him and she wanted to personally anoint his head with this expensive perfume or ointment that she has. Well, why would she want to do that? Because as the event unfolds, we realize that she has, she has heard Jesus' message and she's experienced his forgiveness and it's changed her life. Somewhere, we're not told how, either from him or from other people who had been with him, she heard the good news. She heard the good news that the Messiah had come, that there was mercy and grace from God for sinners, that she could be forgiven of all of her many sins, that she could confess her sin, that she could repent, and that she could be forgiven, and that the slate could be wiped clean. And she responded that way to the message and experienced the forgiveness that comes from God through Christ and overwhelmed with love for Jesus she comes to this party to show her gratitude she wants to thank him personally but once she arrives it seems that her plan doesn't go as planned what she ends up doing when she arrives at the dinner party would have been absolutely jaw-dropping to everybody who was present and who saw it. She positions herself behind Jesus somewhere near his feet and at some point, overwhelmed by pure love and gratitude for Christ, the floodgates open and she bursts into tears. The indication of the text is that her tears are literally raining down on to the feet of Christ. She just can't hold it back. And probably in a, in a panicky sort of a way, her tears are flowing and she sees that she's wetting Christ's feet and she's looking around likely for a towel or something to dry them off. There's nothing around. So she improvises and she takes down her hair and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair now that may seem bizarre and it was certainly unusual it was in fact shockingly unusual in fact absolutely scandalous to anybody who was watching in the first century a woman's hair was representative of her dignity and a, and a, mar and a woman if married would never ever let her hair down in the presence of of another man, much less in the presence of a group. You just didn't do it. In fact, the Jewish Talmud teaches that a, a man could literally divorce his wife for letting down her hair in front of another man. It was that scandalous of a thing to do. But this woman, frankly, she doesn't care. To her, what matters is expressing her love to Jesus and that's worth the risk. She doesn't care what anybody else thinks. She doesn't care how anybody else perceives it. She doesn't care about the religious rules. She doesn't care about societal norms. She doesn't care about any of those things. She's just swept up into the moment and all she cares about is Jesus and expressing her love and gratitude to him. And so she literally watches his filthy feet 
with her hair and her tears. If that wasn't enough, Luke tells us she began to anoint his feet with the, the perfume and to kiss his feet. Washing feet and anointing feet was, was seen as something that was beneath, it was, it was beneath cultured people. You just didn't do that. That was the kind of thing that was delegated to the lowest level sort of slaves in the culture. Slaves were the people who washed people's feet and dealt with dirty feet. But this dear woman understands who Jesus is. And it is her joy to humble herself and kneel at his feet and wipe the dirt off and kiss his feet and anoint him with this perfume. The word for kiss here is a very intense verb. It's the same verb used of, of the action that took place when the prodigal son returns home to his father and his father grabs hold of him and starts kissing him on his cheeks. It is an intense term of very deep affection. And if all of this isn't like shocking enough that in the middle of a normal dinner party, this woman does all of these things, she's sobbing uncontrollably, pulling her hair down and washing his feet and then uh, anointing them with oil and kissing them. The, the indication of the text is that this wasn't a quick, you know, sort of event that took place and everybody was like, wow, what was that that just happened? It indicates by the tense of the verbs that she's continually doing these things. In other words, she doesn't stop. She keeps on going. For what appears to be an uncomfortably long period of time, she continues to kiss his feet and to anoint them while sobbing the whole time. She's so thankful for what Christ has done for her, nobody else matters. She literally doesn't care what anybody else thinks. Love and gratitude are exploding out of her heart toward Christ. And what she does here in this particular event is a courageous, costly, extravagant act of worship. That's what it is at its heart. And it's born out of gratitude. She was not invited to this party. She would have never been invited to this party. And if the host had spotted her in the crowd, he would have likely had her escorted out. Simply showing up took tremendous courage on her part. She knows her reputation. She knows what people think about her. She knows the looks that she gets when she's walking around town. She sees people begin to whisper when she comes around. She understands the condescending looks and the judgmental glares. She understands the scorn of the public. So for her to show up at the home of a Pharisee, that took remarkable guts. This woman has courage. She has courage. But it wasn't just courage. It was costly and extravagant, her worship. She anoints him, we're told, with, with whatever was in the contents of an alabaster flask, some sort of ointment, quite possibly something called nard, which was a very expensive sort of ointment imported from India. Very, very expensive. And alabaster uh, sort of vessels were used to hold things like nard or myrrh, other spices that were very expensive. It's quite possible that what was in that alabaster jar was the most valuable possession that this woman owned. And here she is pouring it out on the feet of Jesus. I don't know if, if you can picture that scene in your head or not, but everybody who was literally there that day would have been utterly gobsmacked at what they're seeing. They wouldn't have believed it was possible. They wouldn't have believed it was possible. And they're waiting with bated breath to see what's going to happen next. Well, Luke tells us what happens next. In verse 39, he says, There was, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, this is great. This woman is doing this remarkable thing, and all the Pharisee this host can think about. It's how agitated he is that she showed up and how, and how unruly what she's doing really is. He can't believe what he's seeing. This woman has come into his home, has gotten all up close and personal with Jesus, and, and what's more scandalous than what she's doing is what he's doing. He's accepting that. He's receiving that. 
He's not rebuking her. He's not running her off. Instead, he shows her kindness. And he allows her to continue. Under no circumstance would a Pharisee or any other Jewish religious leader allow something like that to take place. To them, it was shameful. To them, it was it was a contaminating event, identifying themselves somehow with her sin by allowing her to do something like that. And any respectable rabbi would have immediately put a stop to it. But Jesus doesn't put a stop to it, does he? He lets her keep doing it. And it now becomes evident to us that this Pharisee is really just evaluating Jesus. He's evaluating her. And now when he sees this begin to unfold, he settles in his mind his conclusion about Christ. There's no way this man is a prophet. That's his conclusion. And he starts talking to himself with some sort of internal dialogue. Now when I read this, I laugh because my wife makes fun of me all the time because apparently I talk to myself a lot. She'll say to me, who are you talking to? And I'll say, nobody. She'll say, okay, I just wondered, because your mouth is moving, like you're having a conversation with somebody, and I don't see anybody else. And I think she's just wondering if I'm nuts. Apparently, I do this. I talk to myself. I, I, I don't realize I'm talking to myself necessarily. So if you ever see me walking around and my lips are moving and no one else is around, I promise I'm not nuts. I'm probably just going through something in my head, and somehow my lips are moving at the same time. But I definitely understand talking to yourself, and this man is doing that. He's talking to himself. He's thinking inside his head. He says to himself, self, there is no way this man could be a prophet. No way. And his rationale is this. If he really was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. He would know who she is, and he would know what kind of a woman she is. He would know that she is a despicable sinner. If he was a prophet, he would know that. And if he was a prophet, he would not only know that, but he would shun her and he would reject her just like all the rest of the respectable religious leaders around him. There's simply no way a godly man would allow this kind of woman to do this. A godly man would reject her. A godly man would rebuke her. A godly man would distance himself from her. There is no way that he's a prophet or even a godly man. That's the conclusion that's the internal dialogue. That's the self-talk that's happening in his head. And in verse 40, Luke says, Jesus answering said to him. <laughs> I love that. Jesus answering said to him. Well, best I can tell, he hasn't asked any questions out loud, right? In fact, he hasn't spoken anything out loud. So far, he's only been talking to himself. But Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And so Jesus tells him a story, a fascinating story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 100 denarii, 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? What a story. It's a short story. But it's a vivid story, isn't it? Simon answers, the one, I suppose, for whom they canceled, he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. This is remarkable, isn't it? Simon has, there's, a, there's an irony in all this. Simon has determined concluded that Jesus cannot be a prophet because he doesn't know who this woman is and what she is like, and yet here Jesus is, not only knowing exactly who she is and what he's like, but he also knows who Simon is and exactly what Simon is like, knowing his thoughts without him even saying them. He knows what kind of woman she is and he knows what kind of man Simon is. And so he says, Simon, let me tell you a story. It's story time with Jesus. It's like, like Sunday school, story time with Jesus. And Simon, I'm going to give it to you in a real simple story. And I'll tell you this, this is one of the things I love about Christ and how he taught and how he engaged people. He taught in simple illustrations and pictures and language that anybody could understand. Like he tells a story here that is impossible to miss. 
here's the story. There's a money lender and two debtors. There's debtor number one and debtor number two. Debtor number one owes the money lender about 500 denarii. That's about 20 months wages for an average worker. Debtor number two owes 50 denarii. About two months pay for a basic average wage earner. They both have the same problem. They're stone cold broke and they cannot pay their, their, their debt. And so the money lender comes along and he says to both of them, your debt is canceled. It's forgiven. It's wiped away. You don't owe a dime. So Simon, which one of those will love the money lender more? What do you think? Simon is in the corner. He has no way out at this point, right? There's no way out. Everybody in the room knows the answer to the question, right? There's no way, like there's no debate about the answer to the question. And so Simon answers the question. I love how he answers it. He doesn't even, he's like, well, I suppose, I suppose answers. I suppose the one who had the larger debt. I mean, he's so reluctant to, to admit what's obvious. He knows the truth. He just refuses to accept it. He knows because Jesus is right here, right now, in front of everybody, exposing his cold, loveless, self-righteous heart. But he won't admit it, he won't repent of it, and he won't trust Jesus to change it. It is the very essence of unbelief. It's irrational. It's irrational. It doesn't matter how much evidence is presented. It refuses to see it. And so Jesus says, congratulations, Simon, you get the right answer. You win the award. You get the golden cookie. You pick the right answer. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 44, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. What a scathing thing to say to this Pharisee. It's fascinating that Jesus turns toward the woman, but he's still talking to whom? To Simon. Simon, do you see this woman? Oh, what kind of question is that? Of course Simon sees the woman. Everybody in the room sees the woman. How could you miss this woman? At least on the surface level, they all see her. There's a sense in which they all see her, but there's a sense in which none of them actually see her. They see what's on the surface, but they don't see her like Jesus sees her. They all see her past, but Jesus sees her future. They all see her sin, but Jesus sees her potential. They all look at her and they see her hopeless spiritual condition, but Jesus looks at her and he sees evidence of redemption. They all see her, but none of them see her. The only one who really sees her is Christ, and he lays out the evidence for Simon. He shows that, that there's evidence of redemption, and it's in contrast to Simon's lack of evidence of redemption. Simon, I came to your house, and here's how things have played out. You didn't even show me the common courtesies that you would show a normal house guest. I came to your home. You didn't even offer me water to wash my feet. I came into your home. You didn't even greet me with a, 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 the normal kiss that you would greet anybody else that came into your home. You didn't even take common inexpensive olive oil and anoint my head, which would have been a, a, a normal greeting for a friend. You, you, you showed me none of the common courtesies. Now this woman, she's washed my feet with her tears and her hair. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. She anointed my feet with the most expensive ointment that she has. Everything that you failed to do, she's gone over the top in doing. And in that very activity, Simon, it shows the difference between you and her. And at this point, Simon's exposed. 
He does not believe Jesus. He does not love him. He does not think he needs anything from him. He does not see himself as a spiritual debtor in any sense. He is a self-righteous man who thinks that his good works have earned him God's favor. His disrespectful yet formally proper treatment of Jesus proves it. It proves it. And this woman's actions, this woman's actions expose his shameful inaction This woman's affections expose his cold, lifeless, dead heart. Her gratitude exposes his thankless, ungrateful soul. And the contrast couldn't be more clear. And he's looking at this woman, and she's still continuing to do what she's been doing all along. He still hasn't stopped her. And then in verse 47, he says this. Therefore I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he says to the woman again, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He says to her, her sins are forgiven. Her sins are forgiven forgiven. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Now, a sort of interpretive note here, Jesus, well, by the way, before I make that, just say this, Jesus never once denies that this woman is a sinner. Never. He never excuses her sin. He never minimizes her accountability for her sin. He simply explains to all who can hear him that her sins, while they are many, have all been forgiven. They've been wiped away. They've been erased. All those things that have been a part of her life no longer define her. The barrier between her and her God is gone. It's gone. She's a new new creation. Now the interpretive note is this. Jesus is not here declaring her sins forgiven in the moment. He's not saying to her, because of what you've done right here in the presence of Simon and all these people, I am declaring your sins forgiven. The indication of the language is he's exposing to everybody in the room the fact that her sins have already been forgiven. She came into the room forgiven. And what she does when she comes into the room, her love and her gratitude expressed toward Christ is evidence that forgiveness has already taken root in her heart. It's not the source or the cause of her forgiveness. It is the outflow of it. Her extravagant love is evidence of the reality of a forgiven heart. And in contrast, Simon's lack of love makes clear that not only is he not the little debtor in the parable, but he's a man who's still in his sin, whose debts have not been forgiven. And Jesus lays out a very simple principle from the story. He says this, very simply, he who is forgiven little, loves little. He who's forgiven much, loves much. It's such a simple, simple principle, but so piercingly true. Your faith has saved you. How did this woman get forgiven? How did she find salvation? The only way that any person ever does. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. She was saved by grace through faith. Apart from her works. She had heard the good news. that She had confessed her sin. She had repented. She had placed her faith in Christ. Trusting him to save her. And the result of that is a forgiven heart. And a redeemed soul that could not help but explode toward Christ an extravagant, intense, authentic worship because her heart was so filled with gratitude and love for him. She could do nothing else. Nothing would stop her. Can you imagine being there for this? Can you imagine seeing it? I'd love to be like a, a news reporter outside the house interviewing people as they left, saying, hey, what'd you think of that? Our time is up, so let me give you just three quick takeaways from this to sort of hang your thoughts on as you wrap up your thoughts on this. The first one is this. Jesus delights to extend grace to sinners, particularly those whose sins are many. You might wanna write that one down. Jesus delights to extend grace to sinners, particularly those 
whose sins are many. Jesus welcomes those who are rejected by legalistic religious establishments. And his behavior on this particular day is an absolute assault on the hypocritical religious snobbery that so often marks the lives of God's people. And it's so easy for religious snobbery to make its way into our hearts and souls and our behavior. There's not a person in this room that's immune. We can become masters at, at hiding a prideful, arrogant, spiritual snobbery underneath a very thin veneer of religiosity and tell ourselves we're being spiritual when in fact we're being so carnal it's hard to imagine. And it's just as repulsive when it shows up in my life and yours as it was when it showed up in Simon's. This is just my opinion, but I think it's true. There's nothing more destructive to the cause of Christ today in our world, in our culture, than arrogant, graceless, legalistic believers who have little or no compassion for people whose lives are being ravished by sin. People who are far more concerned about protecting their own turf than they are about extending God's grace to those who need it most. And it's all around us. Jesus Christ sought out people like this woman. He sought out these people, tax collectors, prostitutes, and the people that they hung around with. They were comfortable around him, and he was comfortable around them. Philip Yancey said this, Jesus moved the emphasis to God's mercy. Instead of the message, no undesirables allowed, he proclaimed, in God's kingdom, there are no undesirables The reputation of our Savior was a friend of sinners. Let me ask you, is that your reputation? If I were to interview the people who know you best, would they be able to say, that guy is a friend of sinners? He loves people that don't know Christ. When you encounter lost people, how do they, how do they feel in your presence? Do they, do they feel the warmth of affection or do they feel the coolness of rejection? Are they drawn to you or can they not hardly wait to get away from you? It's probably one or the other. Christ loved people who were far from him. And he embraced them. And he went after them. He befriended them. And he accepted them while giving them the truth. We're called to do the same thing. Second, genuine worship can't be manufactured. It flows out of a heart filled with love and gratitude for Jesus. This should be fairly obvious. You can't make up and, and fake worship. Worship flows out of a heart that's been transformed from Christ. And the heart that's truly transformed by Christ can't help but worship its Savior. Because it's so overwhelmed by love and gratitude. That is the example of this dear woman. And it should be the example of our life. The cold, lifeless activity that's often passed off as Christian worship today in many places, it runs completely contrary to this text. And I'm not sure where we got the idea that somehow reverence demands we put a lid on our emotions, but it's an unbiblical thought. And this text makes it very clear. Both our minds and our hearts have been corrupted by the fall, and both need to be redeemed and reoriented toward Christ in worship. And both matter. And this woman has experienced both. Finally this, there's a direct correlation between the depth of our sense of forgiveness and the depth of our love for Christ. That's the most obvious takeaway, isn't it, from the parable? That there's a direct correlation. The more in touch we are with how filthy our sin is, and the more, the more amazed we'll be by the grace of God that forgives it. And the more drawn to Christ we will be in love. Let me just say to you this morning, if your worship has grown cold, and your love for Christ has faded into the background of your life, you don't need to try to gen up more emotions in the moment. You don't need to try and fake it till you make it. You need to take a long, hard look in the mirror and look deeply into your sinful past and own up to the darkness of your own evil that's infected your heart and be amazed that someone like Jesus would redeem somebody like you. 
I promise if you do that, your love for Christ will explode. And nobody will have to pull worship out of you. You'll jump over every barrier to let it loose. Just like this dear woman. The real temptation for us is to look around and start thinking, hey, we're not that bad. And the moment we start thinking we're not that bad, our love and affection for Christ begins to fade. And our worship becomes corrupt. So what about you this morning? What about me? Where do we stand in these areas? Are you a friend of sinners? Do you recognize the depth of your own sin? Do you want to be like Christ? Beyond that, maybe you identify with this woman and you are here this morning and you are very well acquainted with your sin and you're trying to figure out what in the world to do with it. Well, what you do with it is you do as she did. You go to Christ Jesus, the Lord and Savior, God in human flesh, who is a friend for you, who stands in front of you not to zap you with his condemnation and judgment, but who stands before you with arms of mercy and grace wide open, saying to you, just like he said to this woman, at some point in the past, your sins can be forgiven. The slate can be wiped clean. Confess your sin, turn from it. Trust Jesus to save you. And he will. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed at this text and this woman. I stand in amazement of her. I can't believe the courage. I can't believe her ability to just throw off every concern about what anybody thought just to get to you. Maybe the reason I can't understand it is because my heart doesn't burn with that kind of love for you. Maybe the reason I can't fully understand it is because my gratitude has never reached that level. I pray if that's the reality, Lord, you would make it clear and you would draw me to yourself along with my friends who are here this morning in the same way that we would be the kind of Christians who are known as friends of sinners not people who indulge in the things that they indulge in that are sinful and an offense to you, but the kind of people who come alongside them and love them regardless of who they are and what they're doing, care enough about them to be their friend, to tell them the truth, and to remind them that their sins can be washed away and they can be made new. But for some of us this morning, as our worship has grown cold, and you, the great physician, as you've, you've given us the diagnosis, it's probably a failure to understand and come to terms with the depths of our own sin. And because we don't see the depths of our own sin, we're not particularly grateful people. And because we're not particularly grateful, our love has gone cold. Only you can rectify that in our hearts, and we pray you would this morning. Or for the one who may not know you, who identifies most with this woman, who had a reputation for sin, I pray that they would be drawn to you this morning. They would see in you a friend of sinners who's willing to forgive them for everything, even though their sins are many. And that they would be drawn to you this morning. By your spirit, do your work, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.